Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on weight management. My name's Jan and I'll be your host. And today I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Alan Barclay to take us through this very pertinent topic and one that I'm sure we can all improve in our daily practice. Alan is an accredited practicing dietitian who completed, completed a PhD at the University of Sydney on the association between carbohydrate and the risk of developing lifestyle-related diseases like type 2 diabetes. He worked at Diabetes Australia in New South Wales from 1998 to 2014 as Research and Development Management Manager and Head of Research and the Glycemic Index Foundation as Chief Executive Scientific Officer from 2006 to 2016 and is now a consultant. He has worked in private practice since 1994, seeing people with diabetes and pre-diabetes amongst others. He's a research associate at the University of Sydney and is the editor of the university's GI News. He's co-authored 40 peer-reviewed articles and has presented his research at scientific conferences around the globe. He's the co-author of five books, including Reversing Diabetes, Low GI Diet, Managing Type 2 Diabetes, The Good Carbs Cookbook and The Ultimate Guide to Sugars and Sweeteners. So hello, Alan, and, and welcome. Lovely to have you here today and nice to catch up again after so many years. Yeah, hi, Jan. No, it's great to be here. And yes, it, it has been a, a few years, I think, many since I've seen you in person. So yeah, it's, it's really good. Great. Well, as I mentioned, today we'll be discussing the importance of weight management in the context of diabetes and pre-diabetes. And I guess to begin with, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the importance of weight gain or loss for people living with pre-diabetes or diabetes. Absolutely. So as a prelude, it's important for us to recall that the scientific evidence suggests that being overweight or obese accounts for up to 90% of the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And a useful re reference for this particular statistic is Abdullah and colleagues in Diabetes Research and Clinical Practice published in 2010. And these references that I'm quoting will be available uh, on the website uh, after the presentation. Now, over the past 20 years, randomised control trials have proven that losing 5 to 7% of your initial body weight, or around 4 to 6 kilograms for an average 80 kilogram Australian adult, helps roughly one in two people with either impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glycemia, otherwise known as prediabetes, of course, uh, to revert to normal glycemia or normal blood glucose levels. And a useful reference for that is Usitupa and colleagues in Nutrients 2019. Now, in addition to that, uh, we also know from some recent randomised control trials that losing 10 to 15% of our initial body weight, or around 8 to 12 kilograms for an average 80 kilogram Australian adult, will help at least one in two people with type 2 diabetes to go into remission. And obviously, there's a few caveats to that. They have to be you know, diagnosed within six years, for example. And some useful references that have all of the details for those particular studies, uh, Mike Lean and colleagues in The Lancet in 2018, and Tahiri and colleagues in The Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology in 2020. Now, I thought I should just mention, of course, the definition of re remission was uh, published a few years ago in Diabetes Care, and that is a glycated haemoglobin less than 48 millimoles per mole, or 6.5% in the old uh, method. Um, or a fasting plasma glucose less than 7 millimoles per litre for at least three months. And of course, attaining these parameters 
following the complete cessation of all the glucose lowering therapies, so whether that's orals in particular, of course, but also insulin. Um, and a useful reference for this is the Riddle and colleagues published in Diabetes Care in 2021. Now, I thought I should also mention that, of course, people are aiming to lose body fat or what we know scientifically as adiposity, not water or glycogen or, for that matter, bone or muscle. So, you know, it's not just about losing weight. It's about losing fat in particular and ideally around the middle. Um, and it's worth mentioning that, you know, the body mass index or BMI, which is so commonly used, it's very easy. You, know, you only have to measure somebody's height once and then you can just measure their weight serially. So it's very convenient, but it's not the best tool for measuring uh, or assessing people's adiposity, particularly if they carry the extra weight around the middle, which is very common, of course, in diabetes and pre-diabetes. And this is where the fat is the most metabolically active. So there are much better tools that we can use that are equally easy. The waist circumference, of course, you know, you can get a high quality tape measure from uh, well, various sources, and that's very easy to measure that. So you can measure the waist to height ratio uh, using that, and, and less than 0.55 is ideal for uh, good metabolic health. Bioimpedance analyzers are very common nowadays. You can, of course, buy them in department stores, but the good quality ones, you need to go to a specialist, um, and they are worth several thousand dollars, but they're a worthwhile investment. Uh, and from them, you can calculate the fat mass index, which is the fat mass in kilograms divided by the height in meters squared. And that's a much better indicator of, of where you're carrying your fat. And there's a really good uh, reference for that, Summer and colleagues in scientific reports in 2020, which talks about those different methods and the, the pros and cons of those. So I guess the bottom line is you can be in a healthy weight range according to the BMI, but carry extra fat around the tummy or the abdomen or vice versa. You can have a high BMI, so this is a, an athlete, say, or a bodybuilder a very acceptable fat mass and distribution. So, so it's a pretty cool uh, crude tool, the BMI, and, and the other tools are better. And lastly, I thought I should mention, talking about that uh, physical activity in athletes, there's a little bit of a myth going around. It, it goes back to a few of the more, more recent diet zealots promoting their dodgy diets in the popular media. And this belief is that um, exercise isn't important with weight, with respect to weight management. And really, it's based on a poor understanding of science in general. Most of the people that write these books have no science background whatsoever, but also in particular about body composition. And, uh, you know, it's obviously I think most people who've ever done exercise know that if you do exercise sufficiently, you'll gain muscle. Um, this may actually put up your weight because muscle weighs more than fat. So your weight may go up and that's where they actually are technically correct. But of course, having more muscle or bone is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And we want to lose the visceral, the visceral fat to help us reduce our risk of diabetes and pre-diabetes. So, Luckily, there's been systematic reviews of randomised controlled trials. These indicate that there's a dose-response relationship between exercise or physical activity, if you prefer, and carrying fat around the middle or visceral adiposity. And these reviews have shown that the more people exercise, the lower their visceral fat levels, and there's actually a dose-response with respect to that. So this is vitally important uh, when it comes to metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. And a useful reference for this is a study by Reccia and colleagues published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, this year in, in 2023. Thanks for that, Alan. So given the benefits of weight loss for people living with diabetes, can you share with us some of the strategies that perhaps you incorporate in your practice to help people lose weight? And whether it's to be uh, healthy eating and or increased exercise or any other strategy that you might use? Absolutely. So, of course, healthy eating and increasing physical activity are absolutely the cornerstones of the kind of advice uh, that I 
provide, given that I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Um, it's important to, to note that I don't recommend any particular diet, so I'm not recommending high fat, low fat, whatever, low carb, high carb, and I don't therefore recommend any particular macronutrient targets either. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to do that in, in a clinical setting to work out what somebody's having and to translate that into a, a meaningful diet for people. I think it's very academic and, and not what happens in the real world. So what I actually do is I spend about half an hour of my very first session with a new person um, actually asking in great detail about their personal, social and cultural backgrounds, trying to find out what sort of social and cultural preferences they have for food, and that includes religious preferences, their personal food preferences, because we all have them. You know, some people like sweet foods, others like savoury foods, for example. And then in much greater detail, which foods and beverages that they specifically consume on a daily basis, weekly basis, less, less frequently. And of course, what physical activities they participate in, and that includes what they're doing in their, their work, but also their leisure activities as well. Now, based on this, I assess whether they're consuming too much energy. Obviously, that's kilojoules, or if you prefer, calories, relative to their physical activity level. Uh, and then I consider the amount and type of carbohydrate, fat, and protein that they're consuming. So in particular, the quality of those particular macronutrients. We shouldn't forget alcohol, should we? Everybody overlooks that. And then I provide them with a list of healthier substitutions for the foods and beverages that they typically consume. So basically, I have a shopping list that uses the swap it, don't stop it approach. And rather than having perhaps the less healthy version that they're currently eating, swap over to a similar but uh, more healthier option uh, that will help improve their health from a weight perspective. But also often they have risk factors, obviously, if they've got diabetes in particular, like um, high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Uh, so options that will help reduce their cholesterol and blood pressure as well, if necessary, if they have those issues. Obviously, not everybody does. And then lastly, based on their estimated energy requirements, I do provide a kilojoule controlled meal plan um, based on their estimated requirements. And uh, this, of course, incorporates their personal food preferences and the healthier substitutions that I've already helped identify with them. I generally aim for roughly two to two and a half thousand kilojoules less a day than what they're currently consuming. So it's just a reduced energy diet. It's not over the top, and, and that's an amount that most people can cope with. In fact, if most people cut out the in-between meal snacks, they'll do that already without having to change their main meal. So it's not overly restrictive. Um, I do have two main versions of these calorie-controlled diets, and one of them is more like a Mediterranean-style diet. So in other words, it's, it's higher in fat, um, whereas the other one's more like an Asian-style diet or Indian, if you like, which, of course, are higher in carbohydrate. And that's reflecting, again, depending on what the person's cultural background is, now, whether they're from the Mediterranean or Middle Eastern part of the world or whether they're from India or the Southeast Asian part of the world. Because although Mediterranean diet's great, you know, if you're from Asia, you're probably not going to stick with it for very long, six months if you're lucky, before you're cultural and, and other uh, things in your life sort of drag you back to your, your typical eating pattern. So I think it's very important to match the sort of recommendations to the person's uh, ethnic background amongst other things. Now, I generally try and get them to lose about half a kilo a week, which might not sound like a lot, but I do remind people that's a tub of margarine, you know, a typical tub of margarine you get in your supermarkets, roughly 500 grams. And of course, we are aiming to get them to lose fat. So if you're losing half a kilo a week of fat, you've done really well. And I think, you know, people are sort of primed with biggest loser kind of mentality that they're going to lose bucket loads of weight a week. I really try and uh, put that into a better perspective. And, you know, yeah, you can lose lots of weight if you cut back on carbs to next to nothing and lose 
glycogen and water. Uh, but generally, I've, well, in fact, nearly 30 years of clinical practice, I've never had anybody come in to see me and ask me to lose glycogen or water. They don't know what glycogen is for starters, and, and generally they don't want to be dehydrated. And likewise, they don't want to lose muscle or bone. They're really there to lose fat. So I think you know, it's important to put that into context. There are many ways of losing weight, but to lose fat, it has to happen slowly because it built up slowly. And finally, if they aren't sufficiently physically active, and a lot of people today aren't, I do encourage them to follow the Australian Physical Activity and Exercise Guidelines, which you, of course, can download from uh, one of the Australian government websites. And it's very practical, uh, walking and other moderate activities and the uh, weight-bearing activities a couple of times a week as well. Now, on follow-up appointments, I don't simply focus on weight in kilograms, of course. Um, I have a quality bioimpedance analyzer, for, for what it's worth. It's a Tanita TIMC 580, if you're interested in looking that one up. Um, it gives me very detailed information on people's fat mass, where it's distributed, their muscle and bone mass as well. And, of course, I'm really focusing on the, the loss of the body fat and the retention of the lean body mass. So if they've lost weight they've lost fat and they've retained their muscle, I'm really happy. If they've lost weight and they've lost fat and muscle, I'm not unhappy. But if they've lost weight and you know, gained fat and lost muscle, then I'm really unhappy. So, you know, you really got to tailor your uh, recommendations to make sure you don't uh, make things detrimental. And I think that's where a lot of the crash diets, they do exactly that. Um, you'll, you'll, lose, you'll lose everything. Uh, and that's why the metabolic rate goes down after they've been on the diet because they've lost a lot of their muscle mass and bone mass and uh, you know, that just slows everything down. So it's a really important trap not to fall into. So really focusing on the fat and, and retaining muscle and bone is absolutely imperative. And of course, that's through appropriate healthy eating and, and appropriate physical activity. Now, finally, I thought I should mention, and occasionally you'll get these kind of people walk in the door, but, um, you know, it's not, not necessarily routine, but some people need to lose weight urgently for, so they need to have surgery or you know, and let's, let's face it, if they want to try and put their type 2 diabetes into remission, then they can use a very low energy diet. And uh, you can, of course, buy them in your pharmacy. Uh, there are specific formulations now. There's, there are food regulations that recently came into effect, and that should make it clear that whatever's on the shelf in the pharmacist is, in fact, uh, uh, making the, the right, meeting the right regulations and, and having the right nutrients to, to provide safe weight loss using a very low energy diet. Um, they provide 3,350 kilojoules a day, uh, which is not a lot, uh, but using them, most people will lose between one and three kilograms per week. And generally speaking, it's safe to go on them for three to four months in a row. So, so obviously that will cause a fairly rapid weight loss in a relatively short period of time. And um, that's great, obviously, if you're wanting to go into surgery for whatever reason, or if you're trying to put your type 2 diabetes into remission, for example. Um, and lastly, I should mention that the whole psychological and behavioural uh, support side is an absolutely essential part of the process and uh, how you talk to people, making sure that they're well motivated, etc. We mustn't forget all of that. So I guess we can't have this conversation without thinking about behavioural change, especially given we're aiming for sustainable um, long-term results. So what does part does behavioural change play when it comes to helping people lose weight and improve their diabetes management? Absolutely, yes. Behavioural change is obviously absolutely essential. My approach, I guess, is sort of subtle. Um, we've already talked about it briefly. So swapping to healthier versions of the person's usual food and beverage choices and only moderately reducing the kilojoule content of their typical daily fare 
does aid long-term compliance or adherence, if you prefer, as it's not overly disruptive to their family, to their friends, uh, to their cultural habits, for example, if they're very religious. So, so yes, just doing the, the swap it, don't stop it approach and a moderate kilojoule reduction, I think is absolutely essential to help them slowly change their behaviour. Um, so it involves substitution of healthier brands of foods and, and drinks. And of course, being mindful of the amounts that they're eating and drinking when they are consuming. And that whole mindful approach to eating is, is obviously quite popular and rightfully so. I think it's important to think about what you're eating and drinking and to enjoy it every bite or sip um, rather than just sort of bite and swallow uh, in front of the TV like a lot of people do. And I guess so part of the thing is, is not to eat or drink in front of the TV to make the meal an important occasion, preferably have it with family members or friends. So, so you know, eating is important. It's an important part of our existence and to really make something of it like they do in Europe, like France and Italy, for example, and Spain. Now, another thing I've observed over the years is that many people, particularly today, skip meals and typically that's breakfast. And they seem to sort of, you know, have next to nothing for breakfast, have a small lunch. By the afternoon, they're absolutely ravenous. And then in the evening time when they get home, they're sort of you know, non-stop eating until they go to bed. So uh, I think it's really tr important, particularly from a uh, metabolic perspective and an insulin resistance perspective to try and break that pattern. So uh, it is associated with increased insulin resistance, particularly skipping breakfast in the morning. So, you know, even if they're not that hungry, and I accept that a lot of people are, and I do encourage them to try and have something when they get up in the morning, uh, whether it's, you know, a drink or, you know, some dry toast or, you know, a little bit of breakfast cereal, something like oats, for example. Uh, just a little bit, even if they're not feeling hungry, to help them break this cycle and then encourage them to have a, you know, a larger lunch so that they're not so ravenous when they get home and afternoon snack if they're, if they're needing one. So, yeah, just to try and break this cycle. And, uh, you know, so it is important to, particularly with breakfast, if they're really not a breakfast eater, to try and explore with them the sort of foods and drinks that they are likely to have in the morning uh, that they can fit in. You know, a lot of people are very busy. They have to get up. Uh, get ready for work, take the kids to school, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, even if it's something quick, at least it's breaking that fast and it does seem to help with the insulin resistance. And another thing I think that's uh, maybe not that culturally trendy anymore, but uh, uh, when I grew up in the 70s, <laughs> I used to chew gum a lot. Uh, chewing gum between meals is actually a good way to help um, if you're feeling particularly hungry. And, and as I said, a simple way of cutting maybe two, two and a half thousand kilojoules out of the average person's diet is actually to have uh, less snacks in between meals, but to stick to your main meals, of course. Thanks for that, Alan. So does the weight loss journey vary between individuals? Um, I mean, do some people lose weight easier than others, for example? And if so, what's the cause of this variability? And is there any literature that addresses this aspect of weight management? Yes, absolutely. It, everybody's journey is different, and, and that's the whole thing. And, you know, I, I think public health messages have to sort of be a one-size-fits-all because of the nature of those messages, but everybody really is different, and it is ideal if we uh, tailor-make our recommendations to each person. Uh, you know, on a broader scale, it's long been known that men actually find it easier to lose weight than women. In fact, I used to work at the Bodyline Clinic at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney many years ago, and we only focused on men because we knew it was much easier for them to lose weight. <laughs> um, so, you know, we were cheating a bit there, I guess. But, uh, you know, so, um, and that's for a whole variety of reasons from the fact that often men have never uh, even bothered to go on a diet because you know, up until they usually have some sort of health problem, they don't care. 
uh, and then there's biological reasons with respect to women, obviously with hormonal and life stage issues as well. So, so many reasons for those differences, and we need to keep that into account. I mean, women just aren't smaller men; they they are biologically different, and we should not forget that. And the other side of the coin, so I've already mentioned insulin resistance a little bit, and people with insulin resistance do often find it harder to lose weight than people that don't have it. Uh, in fact, a recent uh, randomised controlled trial that used the very low energy diets. Uh, over four to 52 weeks, found that uh, people with type 2 diabetes lost 8.9 to 15 kilograms over that time frame, so over nearly a year, whereas those without it lost um, 8 to 21 kilos. So substantially more when you think about it, up to 50% more if they didn't have diabetes. So there is something about the um, insulin resistance in, in people with diabetes or pre-diabetes that seems to make it harder for them. Uh, to lose weight than those that don't have diabetes. And a, and a nice refer for, reference for this is uh, Leslie and colleagues in the International Journal of Obesity, published in 2017. Now, the mechanism, of course, is much debated, as most things are in nutrition and weight, um, for, for, for various good reasons. Um, the popular current theory is the carbohydrate insulin model. You may have heard about that one. Uh, David Ludwig from Harvard is a major proponent. It theorizes that consumption of high glycemic load carbohydrates, so those with a high glycemic index in large amounts, and obviously the type and amount of carbohydrate we consume matters, so that's really what it's getting at. This produces hormonal changes that promote energy disposition in our fat tissue or adipose tissue, so the high insulin makes it easier for the fat cells to take up and also generate fat in them and sort of get larger, and it makes it harder for them to, on the other hand, release it into the blood. It also seems to exacerbate hunger and lowers people's energy expenditure. So, so that's the model. But like all things, there are those who disagree with it, and I think more research is definitely needed to explore that as we learn more about what's driving the current overweight and obesity epidemic around the globe. It's not just Australia, of course. It's happening in most parts of the planet. Thanks again for that. So how do you work with clients when it comes to goal setting, for example, goal weights, goal health outcomes, and so on? Yes, well, although I do look at the healthy weight for height charts, um, and they are useful in a, as a rough guide, I generally ask what the person themselves' goal weight is, because most people that come and see you do have a weight in mind that's, you know, good weight for them where they think, well, I was comfortable at that weight or I fitted into a particular, say, it's a suit or a dress, you know, if some people... Uh, trying to lose weight for a special occasion, for example, like a wedding. Um, so, so what is their personal goal weight? I think it's important to find that out and then think about how that compares to the healthy weight range for their heights. Is it realistic? If it's not, tell them so. Um, one of the beauties of the bioimpedance analyzers, the high-end ones, they do, there's a very nice uh, graphic that they have that gives you an idea of body build and, and this takes into account muscle and bone mass. So you can sort of work out, well, if... Uh, they want to get down to this weight, it might in fact be too low for their particular build. They might be literally big boned and muscular. And I'm thinking here, for example, a Pacific Islander or a Maori who are very well built. That's why they play uh, rugby, for example, right? Uh, so, you know, the healthy weight range for them, for their height, might be completely unrealistic. So it's important to sort of get that one out into the open if you think it is. Those charts are actually well, originally were designed for white Western men. So they're definitely not recommended for everybody. And I also sort of explore often is what was their early weight, what was their weight in their early adulthood? So, you know, most of us reach our uh, full out of height, women 
late teens, men, mid-20s, what was their weight around then? Because that gives you an indication of, you know, when they were fully mature, what was uh, a reasonable weight? And it's only as we sort of, you know, get older, 30s, we have kids and become less active, et cetera, that we start to pile on the, the kilograms. So I think it's worthwhile thinking about that as well. So I think, yeah, really working out with them as an individual, what, what is the best target weight for them that's realistic? That's that's the bottom line. And, and of course, the bioimpedance analyzers that I've talked about um, will certainly help you in your decision making. And then you can use the graphics that they produce to provide that uh, reinforcement for them. Now, of course, the other health indicators that you mentioned, absolutely, I did briefly talk about at the beginning, but blood glucose being the most obvious one because we're talking about diabetes and pre-diabetes, but uh, a lot of people have either high total cholesterol and or high LDL and low HDL cholesterol. We know that's very typical in people with uh, diabetes and pre-diabetes, so we need to think about those and, and often high triglycerides as well. And, and it's not uncommon, of course, for people to have high blood pressure, so the full metabolic syndrome or syndrome X as it was once known. So we know that all of these um, associated risk factors do improve. Uh, people lose, you know, between 5 and 10% of their initial body weight. These risk factors will uh, start to go back to normal, um, usually over, a, you know, a, a, at least three three-month period. Uh, obviously, for cholesterol and triglycerides in particular. So, so that's an all an important consequence of of healthy weight loss. And I think you know that that sort of time frame. So I mentioned before, half a kilo a week uh, with respect to weight is a good target, and and three to twelve months for these other indicators. I think is uh, is what people should be thinking of. You know, really realistic expectations. We know with Medicare, you can only do things like cholesterol every three months anyway, or uh, HbA1c, you know, three to six months, depending on the person. Uh, so yeah, thinking about what can actually be measured as well. Uh, that way, they've got some clear targets in their head and they can go off uh, and get the blood test organised with their um, general practitioner or other healthcare professionals and then bring those results in and see some, some real results over the course of the the year. So I think it's really important to have those concrete goals and ones that can be proven through objective tests. And of course, if it's something that beyond that, you know, uh, a good example is, you know, people often have various injuries, partly, you know, through wear and tear of life or maybe related to their weight, and they may need to see another health professional like uh, an exercise physiologist or physiotherapist, for example, for specific um, physical activity advice as well. So uh, do not be afraid to refer people on. Thank you for that. So Tell me, do you find that there's often a plateau in weight loss? I mean, what causes this and how do you work with your clients through this phase to ensure long-term results as you were talking earlier? Well, absolutely. Um, as soon as the, the basic energy balance equation, uh, calories or kilojoules in versus energy expenditure sort of evens out and it's almost inevitable, then the weight will reach a particular plateau. So that's just yeah, human physiology and I know there's a lot of debate, you know, people say that calories don't matter. Well, I'd argue that they quite clearly do, and the research is, is quite strong. But obviously where you get those calories from is the really important issue, um, obviously from high-quality foods and drinks rather than what we would call generically junk food is the way to go. But but even if, you know, I always remember I had an old friend um, in North America who, who actually not long after the um, supersized me, if he came out, decided to go on a kilojoule-controlled um, McDonald's diet and, and actually lost weight over a month. So, you know, I guess, you know, it's just a little anecdote, but it just, uh, you know, kilojoules and calories do matter, and there will eventually be a point where you plateau, 
when that occurs, there are obviously a number of things you can do. You can further reduce people's energy consumption. If there's room to move in their diet, uh, you know, cut back by, say, a 1,000 kilojoules more, for example. Uh, so just a small reduction will help move things along again. Or maybe easier, uh, particularly after they've lost a substantial amount of weight, is to increase physical activity. And many people, that's uh, perhaps a better pathway. And I think most people are aware that, you know, doing up to a moderate intensity physical activity a week, for example, is very good for weight reduction. So maybe focus on that side of the equation, maybe both. And that's where you've got to really use your judgment and discuss it with a person. Can they fit in the extra exercise? Can they reduce their kilojoules by another thousand kilojoules? And, you know, for Australian adults, the sort of floor for nutritional adequacy is around about 4,200 kilojoules a day. Below that, it starts to become difficult to get all of the vitamins and minerals uh, that you need for health and well-being. So, uh, you know, so think about that when you think, well, how far can I go? Can I go any lower than that with this person? Maybe we just need to focus on the, the physical activity side of the equation. And there is a little caveat there. I mentioned before the very low energy diet. They do provide less. They're 3,350 kilojoules at the maximum by uh, legislation, but some of them are providing less. Uh, and they are generally nutritionally complete. They are fortified with various vitamins and minerals. So, so you could think about using a VLED if they reached, if the person reached the plateau and they need to lose more for whatever reason, then that's certainly an option that's worth discussing with them. And you need to discuss the pros and cons with them. Obviously, uh, starting on a VLED, it's a little bit of a challenge to your lifestyle. Um, and it's best if you can adhere to it, you know, three, uh, serves per day for, two to three months is ideal for most people. So they've got to be able to fit that into their uh, life, basically. You know, is Easter coming up? Is Christmas coming up? Are they going overseas? All the rest of the things that happen through our day-to-day -day life. So you've really got to work out with them if, if that's a good option, uh, if, if it's the right time now to do that. Great. Thank you very much. So what are your tips to our listeners around weight management and how can our clinicians listening improve this aspect of their practice, do you think? Well, I think first and foremost, you really need to invest in good equipment. So a good stadiometer or height measurer, if you prefer, a quality tape measure, and ideally, you know, a really good quality set of weight scales. Um, I mentioned the bioimpedance analyzers. They're not cheap, a couple of thousand dollars and above, but I think it's worth investing in those if you can, if you can obviously tax deduct it. And really don't rely on the body mass index. Uh, it's not a good measure of adiposity. It was not invented for that purpose. And, uh, you know, it, it can give you all sorts of uh, errant readings and perceptions, I think, of, of what the people's body composition should be. So, so try and not use that particular tool. Use the other ones that I mentioned earlier, like waist to height ratio and what have you. Um, work very carefully with the person to set a realistic weight target for them, not what it says in the chart. And more specifically, you focus on fat loss. Uh, you know, so say losing you know, five kilograms of fat rather than getting down to a particular weight would be much better for the average person with diabetes or pre-diabetes. And unless they specifically want to go on a particular diet, don't put them on one. You know, food is fashion. It changes well, probably every 10 to 20 years when you look back. So, you know, don't try and get onto the latest diet. Fashion, everybody knows when they come in the door, everybody knows about the latest foods, fashion in the supermarket. Don't get caught up in that. Work out what's best for them based on their cultural, uh, familial, personal food choices, not, not what's just 
being talked about in all of the gossip magazines and columns and blogs of what have you on the internet nowadays. So work out what's best for them with them. And um, yeah, just adapt their existing food and beverage choices, dietary patterns overall to a healthier version than what they're currently eating. I think that's the best way to help them with long-term adherence because obviously if they do have pre-diabetes or diabetes, even if they put it into remission, uh, it'll come back again if they go back to their old way. So we've really got to think about the long term. We know that most diets, yeah, they work fine in six months, but uh, come 12 months, there's very little difference between any of them. So the best diet is the one that you can stick to. Makes perfect sense to me. Thank you for that. Is there any other advice you'd like to share with our listeners? I guess any useful strategies that can be implemented in practice? Well, I think first and foremost, I get very frustrated when I hear or read food is medicine, it's not. It's much more important than medicine. Medicine doesn't generally taste good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, most people don't want to have it. So whereas we like food as a rule, um, and it's you know got very many important functions from simple in enjoyment or hedonism to the cultural and religious and other factors in our life. So, so food isn't medicine. So I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. People eat and drink. A whole variety of foods for many different reasons and nutrition generally isn't the number one reason unfortunately you know taste and price any surveys will show taste and price trumps nutrition for starters uh, so you got to try and make sure what you're recommending to people still taste good but also they can afford it and i think particularly in today's environment interest rates rising and cost of fuels and everything else you know the dollar is really important but luckily eating healthy foods actually can be quite cheap the problem is people might not necessarily have the skills to prepare those cheaper foods. And I'm thinking like legumes, for example, are a fantastic source of protein and low GI carbohydrate, but not everybody knows how to prepare them from scratch. So, so maybe a canned legume, for example, is a better option and still relatively uh, inexpensive. So think about that side of things. I generally do ask people what they're doing for a living and try and sort of, without asking them directly, you try and work out how, how much disposable income they have, how much can they afford to, to eat well? And I think that's something we really need to think about. So being culturally sensitive, yes, ask them what religion they are and um, whether they practice and what have you, um, I think is quite important. And obviously their ethnic background, where they come from, do they still follow those traditions or are they uh, eating more like the average Australian? So really do explore that um, because it's important. And just be accepted that they're not always going to be doing well they're going to have you know steps forwards and step back the whole behavior change model i'm sure everybody's familiar with you know there's lots of things that will derail your your healthy eating plans uh from from births to deaths and many other celebrations that we have throughout the year including religious festivals so these all have an impact on what people eat and drink and their moods and everything else they're their willingness to adhere to your recommendations so you've got to just go with the flow and take these things into account and I think it's important, you know, there are many diet zealots out there promoting their, their latest diet, but typically these people live the life of a monk or a nun. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't go out and do much with anybody. Probably fairly wealthy so they can afford whatever weird and wacky diet that they're um, promoting. But most of us can't. Most of us do have a life. So uh, we can't be that devoted to any particular eating pattern. We're not movie stars. We can't spend our entire day worrying about what we eat and going to the gym. We have to look after our families and go to work and everything else. So... Um, so, you know, uh, don't let the uh, achievements of the zealots uh, mislead you. They're not ordinary people and most people can't achieve their, their perfection that they promote. 
So, you know, therefore, we shouldn't expect anyone to adhere perfectly to any of our recommendations. Nobody's perfect. Um, do your best. You don't have to adhere to the diet 100% of the, the time. You know, 80%, 90%, I'm sure, is good enough for most of us. Great. Thank you, Alan. And thank you once again for your time today from what is probably a busy work day for you. So thank you very much. We appreciate that. Thanks, Jan. And thank you to those of you out there taking time to listen to this podcast. To obtain CPD credit for the podcast, please go to the ADEA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback and evaluation. And just a word on the references that Alan mentioned during the podcast. Those references can also be found on the learning management system if you want to look at them in more detail. And so until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.